The U.S. is sending nuclear weapons to South Korea again. And at the same time, the U.S.-backed Taiwanese military is carrying out war games against China. We'll talk about this and more, the new era of global politics in this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Today we're talking again with Ben Norton. Ben is an investigative journalist based in Latin America. He is the editor of the independent news website, Geopolitical Economy Report, which you can find at geopoliticaleconomy.com. Ben Norton, welcome back. It's always a pleasure being here, Brian. Thanks for the great work you do. Thank you. You are in the tropics. You're in Nicaragua. We hear those beautiful chirping tropical birds. They're with you and they're with us. Ben, there's a lot to talk about today. Right now, as we're recording this show, the right-wing South Korean president is in Washington, D.C., meeting with Joe Biden. And the Biden administration, and this is, I believe, shocking piece of news, has agreed to take U.S. nuclear weapons back to South Korea. It was the United States, not North Korea, not China, not the Soviet Union, that introduced nuclear weapons into the Korean Peninsula. Between 1958 and 1960, the United States had almost a thousand nuclear warheads in South Korea, threatening North Korea, threatening China, threatening the Soviet Union. They took them out about a decade later. The whole talk and sort of discourse narrative has been how to make the Korean Peninsula nuclear free And here the U.S., the biggest nuclear power in the world, sending nuclear weapons back to South Korea. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, well, there's been a pretty marked shift in the political orientation of the government in South Korea. The previous president, Moon Jae-in, was a peace activist. And Moon took a much better line, especially when it came to peace on the Korean peninsula. Unfortunately, the current right-wing president, Yoon Suk-yeol, He is much more aggressive, much more hawkish. He's been compared to Donald Trump. In fact, the Korean media has referred to his political ideology as K-Trumpism, Korean Trumpism, you know, K-pop, but combined with Trumpism. And it's quite scary to see that now he's considering hosting nuclear weapons from the United States. He's also talked, by the way, about Korea, South Korea developing its own nuclear weapons. So all of this is moving toward more escalation. Clearly, the the pretext for this is the conflict with the North. And South Korea, we should always keep in mind, is still effectively militarily occupied by the United States. There are 28,000 U.S. troops who have been there since the 1950s. So even when we talk about South Korea's decision making in terms of its foreign policy, we always have to keep in mind that it doesn't have full sovereignty in some of these decisions, unfortunately, because of Washington's meddling. But I don't doubt that this new president, Yoon, is much more hardline. And it's also concerning considering the escalation against China. And President Yoon, the the new right-wing president of Korea, 
has pledged that he wants to turn up the heat on China. He wants to have a more aggressive posture by South Korea against China, which China is one of South Korea's biggest trading partners. And another key detail in this is that President Yoon also has taken a hard line against Russia in support of Ukraine. So compared to other neighbors in Southeast Asia, for instance, in the ASEAN countries, and even other countries in East Asia, South Korea has shown to be one of the most pro-US forces that is taking an antagonistic position against China and Russia, while at the same time, most other countries in the region and in the global South are being much more neutral and are trying to not take a firm side in these proxy conflicts. It's really something when one considers what's going on. I want to also, for people watching this show or listening to it, to let them know, if they don't know, that the South Korean government is facing formidable opposition on the home front domestically. South Korean people don't like his policies. They don't like the anti-worker policies. They don't like the pro-war policies. They don't like the corruption. The mass movement in South Korea, you know, it basically toppled the government that came before the last government, which led to the development of a progressive government. And that government, the Moon Jae-in government, was seeking better relations with the North. It was seeking to have better relations between North Korea and the United States. And the United States just was very, very unhappy. It seemed like Donald Trump was the only part of the U.S. political establishment that favored a thaw in relations. And of course, we know that Trump went to Singapore first in 2018 and then Hanoi in 2019. And there was a discussion about how to have a denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula but based on the normalization of U.S. relations with North Korea. In other words, to stop threatening North Korea. And nobody liked that. The Democrats hated Trump for wanting peace in Korea. The Republican Party establishment also hated Trump for it. Trump might have had his own reasons. Maybe he wanted to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Who knows with Donald Trump? But nonetheless, while that was promising, the U.S. government just basically in both parties said no. And I want to remind people that 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20 years ago, there was another progressive government in South Korea. The Clinton administration had dispatched Madeleine Albright to North Korea, and there was talk about normalization. And then George W. Bush, well, he came into the White House. He stole the White House. He lost the election, but the Supreme Court gave the, the Bush team the White House in 2000. And then as soon as he was in office, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld scuttled the peace talks with North Korea and South Korea. They did it. You could see them meeting. And when Kim Dae-jung, the then president of South Korea, arrived in the White House, they treated him rudely. They said the sunshine policy is not going to happen. And that's when North Korea left the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That's when it left the NPT and said, OK, Bush is getting ready to invade Iraq invade Afghanistan. They're calling North Korea part of the axis of evil along with Iraq and Iran. We're going to get nuclear weapons. And then we went into this new cycle, Ben, and it's been 20 years. And now we're back. North Korea does have nuclear weapons. The U.S. is sending nuclear weapons back to South Korea. And this could be the flashpoint for a new, not just regional, but global war. It's very dangerous. And again, I want to underscore that 
in the U.S. political establishment, there is no support for peace on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, the irony is that, you know, you, you pointed out that Trump at least rhetorically claimed that he wanted peace and he wanted to have these photo ops on the, the demarcation line that the U.S. created when the U.S. waged war on Korea and killed 20 percent of the Korean population and destroyed 80 percent of the buildings in the north. And famously, the U.S. military said that there were no buildings left to bomb. Curtis LeMay, who oversaw U.S. Air Strategic Command, he complained that he would send out strategic bombers by the U.S. The US planes and they would come back with bombs. And he complained. He said, why do you still have bombs? And they said, there's nothing left to bomb. So the U.S. has you know, treated the Korean Peninsula with utter contempt, basically as a kind of colonial proxy for decades. And now we see that there was a brief attempt at peace. And what happened? Donald Trump's own administration sabotaged the peace that he claims that he wanted, specifically John Bolton, who was his national security advisor, whom he appointed. Donald Trump personally appointed him. And then Trump complained that his peace attempt was sabotaged by the people he appointed. And here we are today where they don't even have a pretense of trying to pursue peace. It's, it's a very dangerous moment. And again, I think we should also not only consider the danger of the conflict that the U.S. has stoked on the Korean Peninsula for decades, but also the growing new Cold War against both China and Russia. And President Yoon, the new right-wing president of South Korea, Yoon Suk-yeol has said very clearly that he wants to boost South Korea's alliance with the United States. South Korea was invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy. South Korea even recently participated as an observer in the NATO summit in Brussels. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization had South Korea as an observer. And with this hardline position against China and Russia and North Korea, with nuclear weapons right in the middle, it's really dangerous. Yeah, couldn't be more dangerous. The United States has never given up preparing for war in Korea. When MacArthur and the UN forces, it was really a US-led operation. The Soviet Union was boycotting the Security Council in solidarity with China, which had been excluded from the Security Council when the US manipulated it so that Taiwan would have the seat of China at the UN. The Soviet Union was boycotting it in June 1950, demanding that China be let into the Security Council. So they weren't there to exercise a veto. So the U.S. used the U.N. basically as a fig leaf for what was essentially a U.S. military invasion of Korea. And the U.S. was able, because of overwhelming military force, to be able to push right up to the China-North Korea border by the end of 1950, right up to the Yalu River. And it looked like North Korea was going to lose. And then a million Chinese volunteers along with North Korean guerrillas and North Korean People's Army units, counterattacked and drove the U.S. back below the 38th parallel. And the country has been divided ever since. But the U.S. didn't succeed. The U.S. thought it was going to carry out regime change in North Korea in 1950. And I think, Ben, just like they, you know, in a way, the way the Southern plantation owners never forgave enslaved people for the liberation, the emancipation of people from slavery after the Civil War and the, the nonstop terror that was directed against black America. The same logic exists for the U.S. empire. They feel like Korea should belong to them. They're very upset that they were driven back below the 38th parallel and they won't forgive Korea 
for not having succumbed to the U.S. military invasion. And as you said, millions of Koreans died, maybe 20% of the entire Korean population. Encyclopedia Britannica in 1967 said, four to five million Koreans died who would not have otherwise died as a consequence of this war. And here we are, 2023, no peace treaty, no peace for the Korean people, and the danger of a new war. And let's just put it into context. This is just a little more than a decade after Obama announced the pivot to Asia. So let's move to, to China because while the U.S. is sending nuclear weapons to South Korea, the U.S.-backed Taiwanese military is conducting military exercises, war games, both now coming up in May, and then they'll be repeated, a different set of war games in July. When China looks at this and they think like, okay, Taiwan and the United States are partnering in preparation for a war with China. Again, the American people don't get it, I don't think. They don't really have a sense because they're not in Korea. They're not in China. They don't know the history of these countries, like what this actually means. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very appropriate to talk about the new government in Korea and Taiwan in the same breath because I mentioned, you know, this new very right-wing president, Yoon, in Korea, who's, you know, known as the K-Trumpist or K-Trumpism is his ideology. Part of that ideology is antagonizing China. And he himself has referred to the Taiwan issue in a way he talks about it as the Taiwan issue in a way that previous South Korean governments had tried to avoid this concern. I mean, clearly he's implying he's not going as far as some Western politicians who are saying, you know, Taiwan is a separate country and all of that. But we have a South Korean leader who is raising Taiwan as an issue, which is hinting that he would support separatists in Taiwan. Now, the very character of the foundation of the foreign relations, the official diplomatic relations that China has with other countries is predicated on them recognizing the one China policy. When the United States formally recognized China for the first time in 1972, so from 1949 until 1972, after the victory of the, the Chinese revolution in, on October 1st, 1949, the U.S. did not formally recognize the People's Republic of China. After more than two decades, the U.S. signed the Shanghai Communique, and the Richard Nixon administration said that it recognizes that there is only one China, and on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, they are China. And at that time, the Kuomintang government, which was basically a U.S. puppet government, also acknowledged the fact that there was one China, and they consider themselves the authorities on Taiwan Island to be the official authorities. Obviously, you know, that's pretty ridiculous, considering we're talking about mainland China, which now has a population of 1.4 billion people. But the point is that, that that was the legal standard on which formal diplomatic relations between China and other countries is based. And we now see the United States constantly pushing up against that with this policy of strategic ambiguity, where you have top US officials like, for instance, Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House, making her the second in command after the president and vice president so she's the third in the chain of presidential command if anything ever happens to the president. So this is a top senior level official from the ruling party, from the Democratic Party. She visited Taiwan, met with Taiwanese leaders and did not go to the mainland. That was a very provocative action. We also just saw that Taiwan's local leader, Tsai, visited the United States and met with McCarthy, 
a Republican congressman. So we see a very dangerous, provocative political campaign being taken by both politicians in the United States and politicians on Taiwan, independence supporters, separatists, who essentially are saying that they do not recognize the one China policy, which means that how can you have formal diplomatic relations between the US and China if the very foundation of that is being questioned unilaterally by Washington? I mean, China's not saying that they, they don't recognize the US sovereignty over Florida. China is not sending politicians to Florida to meet with Florida separatist leader or Texas separatist leaders, right? Or Hawaii. Yeah. I, I mean, but in the case of Hawaii, it's actually very legitimate. I mean, Hawaii was colonized by the United States in a way that Taiwan is absolutely not colonized by China. Taiwan was colonized by Japanese fascist imperialism, right? So this is an extremely dangerous moment. And the latest story we see now is that the US military has sent 200 troops to Taiwan. The US continues to sell billions of dollars of weapons to Taiwan. We see these very provocative discourse from US politicians. And yet at the same time, Biden keeps claiming that he supports the one China policy. So Again, it's this idea of strategic ambiguity. I mean, even calling it that is euphemistic. It's a policy of lying, of saying one thing one day and then saying the exact opposite the next day. And for China, this is an issue that is not only one beyond debate, but it also is an existential security concern. Because for the United States, the plan is very clearly to make Taiwan a US military base and to have US nuclear weapons aimed at the mainland. I mean, we were talking about nuclear proliferation in the Korean Peninsula. Well, this is even more dangerous now because from the 1950s until 1979, the U.S. military had a military base on Taiwan. And as part of the three communiques that the United States signed in the 70s, the United States agreed to withdraw all of its military forces and close its base on Taiwan Island. Well, we now see a gradual U.S. militarization turning Taiwan back into a military base and in the 50s to the 70s, the U.S. had dozens of nuclear weapons on Taiwan aimed at the mainland. So for China, this is simply a national security concern that it cannot tolerate. I mean, it's the United States. We're so used to hearing the U.S. use national security as an excuse to justify anything. But for China, this is an actual national security problem. Iraq never challenged U.S. national security. Iraq's on the other side of the planet. Taiwan is right off the coast of the mainland. Taiwan is part of China. And yet the U.S. is now trying to put weapons. It already has soldiers, but it's trying to put eventually weapons on Taiwan. And furthermore, you know, the, the U.S. military just had these war exercises over Taiwan. And in the background, you can see a photo that shows the early 20th century U.S. military invasion and occupation of Beijing. I mean, China is not stupid. I mean, Chinese officials and Chinese media outlets immediately recognized the photo that was in the background when these U.S. military officers were doing these war games. They see the symbolism of that. That's a reflection of the century of humiliation in which China was partially colonized by numerous Western imperial powers. So this is all, again, we were talking about how dangerous these U.S. policies are. This is even more dangerous. I mean, at every single stage, the U.S. is pushing for war, not only against Russia, but against China, both of which are nuclear armed powers. People are being completely misled if they're listening or getting their information from the mainstream capitalist owned media in the United States. 
China is not planning to invade Taiwan. China is not threatening Taiwan. Taiwan's biggest trading partner is mainland China, People's Republic of China. At the same time as the Taiwan leader was here meeting with Kevin McCarthy in California, her predecessor, who was the leader of the KMT, the party you mentioned, the Kuomintang Party, was carrying out a 12-day historic visit to the People's Republic of China, was being shown the red carpet. Obviously, this other party, which represents a big part of the Taiwanese population, favors and always has considered China to be one China, Taiwan and the mainland to be one. But now, obviously, by having this trip to mainland China at the same time as the Taiwan leader was in the United States trying to court politicians, it shows that there's no danger. There's no looming danger of Chinese aggression in Taiwan. None at all. I mean, even aside from the question of status and recognizing that Taiwan is part of China, so China can't actually carry out aggression against Taiwan because it's part of China. It has sovereignty. China has sovereignty over Taiwan. But there is no threat. There is no threat. Now, on the other hand, at the time of the Chinese Revolution, and most Americans don't know this, I actually wasn't fully aware of it until I had an interview with one of our guests, Dr. Lisa Armstrong, a couple of weeks ago, who wrote about a book about the historic feminist conference that took place six weeks after the Chinese victory was consummated in 1949. That was an incredible interview, by the way. I never had even heard about that. It was amazing. Yeah, it's, and her book, Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, is one that is a fantastic book. We're recommending people read it. But we were talking about how hard it was for the Chinese to hold that conference in China in December 1949. And here's the punchline. The U.S. was still strafing. U.S. war planes were strafing Shanghai at that time. Now, do most Americans know that the United States was engaged in bombing China? in 1949 because the Chinese dared to have a revolution? No, they, American people don't know that. They also don't know that in May 1953, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all of them, voted unanimously to start dropping nuclear bombs on North Korea and on China unless North Korea agreed to an armistice agreement to end the Korean War because the North Koreans, like the North Vietnamese, they were prepared to fight and fight and fight until the foreign occupiers were basically, you know, gave up. And anti-war sentiment would become so profound in the United States that the American occupation would be compelled to end. The North Koreans wanted to keep fighting to liberate and unify their country. So the U.S. wanted to end the war, knew it couldn't win at that time. So they decided, look, we're going to drop nuclear bombs. They obviously communicated to the Chinese government, to the Mao government, we're going to just drop nuclear bombs like the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki all over China, unless you get your North Korean allies to sign the armistice agreement. And then in July, three months later, the armistice agreement was signed. This is a history that the American people know nothing about unless you have a particular interest in this subject. And what we're witnessing, Ben, is the U.S. keeps poking, 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 insisting that it has the right to carry out these kind of military maneuvers and provocations, which any reasonable government in this part of the world would say, look, we're not going to have this happen to us again. We're going to get ready for war. 
And then you had Foreign Affairs Magazine, the, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, run an article a week or two ago. The headline was, Xi Jinping prepares for war. We should listen to him. We should get ready. Well, China would be crazy not to prepare for the war because the U.S. is not only preparing for war, but doing everything possible to incite a war. And again, this is the kind of BS media coverage that people in the United States get that they don't really understand the dynamic of the situation. It's so dangerous. I mean, in fact, the Financial Times just published an article by a British journalist who visited Washington. And he wrote in his article that he was surprised, he was shocked by how hawkish Washington is. He said everyone he talked to inside and outside of government said they're preparing for war. And he said that basically the impression he got was that war is inevitable. It's a question of not if, but rather when. And that's the Financial Times. This is one of the world's leading newspapers. It's very scary. And I mean, you also mentioned nuclear weapons. This is an issue that's come up again and again in our discussion today. And obviously, if anyone uses nuclear weapons, it's the end of humanity. We know enough about the potential effects of nuclear weapons that it would lead to nuclear winter and the vast majority of humanity would die, not because of the explosion, but because of all of the soil and soot in the air that would prevent crops from growing and people would starve to death. There'd be mass famine. I mean, we're literally talking about the destruction of humanity. And yet in the United States, there's such a flippance with which pundits talk about the possibility of war with China or Russia. I mean, Ukraine is it's just one example of it. Now we're talking about the Korean Peninsula. We're talking about Taiwan. You mentioned, for instance, that multiple U.S. officials wanted to nuke China and Korea. So, for instance, I mentioned Curtis LeMay, who was the head of U.S. Strategic Air Command, who oversaw the borderline genocidal war in Korea. He wanted to drop nuclear weapons on Korea. The New York Times also revealed just a few years ago that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the commanders of the U.S. military, wanted to use nuclear weapons to drop nukes on mainland China during the Taiwan Strait Crisis in the 1950s. So there are historical parallels for this moment that we're in. Fortunately, I'm not someone to praise President Eisenhower, but Eisenhower said, no, we can't start a nuclear war with China, especially just a few years after World War II ended. And let's not forget, by the way, that in World War II, around 20 million Chinese died. And their sacrifice in fighting against Japanese fascism is often erased along with the Soviet sacrifice, sacrificing 26 million people to defeat Nazism. But anyway, the point is that there is a historical parallel here. We also know, speaking of Korea and China, that U.S. officials wanted to drop nuclear bombs on. We know that in addition to that, that John Foster Dulles wanted to nuke Vietnam. John Foster Dulles, who was formerly Secretary of State, he was also brother of the founder of the CIA, Alan Dulles. So in the 1950s and 60s, top U.S. officials from the State Department and the Pentagon were considering nuclear war against China, Korea, and Vietnam. And why? To prevent socialist revolution, and not just socialist revolution, to prevent national liberation. I mean, to prevent these countries from overthrowing colonial puppet governments and being truly independent. And here we are today, not only is China independent, China is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. According to the measure of purchasing power parity, which is the best way to measure the size of an economy, China's GDP is significantly larger than the US GDP. And China's growing at 5% per year compared to just 1% in the US. And the quality of growth in China is at a whole different level. I mean, a lot of so-called economic growth in the US is all just 
financial speculation and companies buying back their own stocks and artificially inflating their stocks and bubbles of asset price inflation. I mean, the Chinese economy is growing through actual manufacturing, through massive industries. I mean, I just saw, for instance, that in three years, China has quadrupled its car exports thanks to state central planning and industrial policy. And China, in the first quarter of 2023, exported over 1 million electric vehicles. I mean, this is the future. Like, And the United States can see the massive rise of China. And that's I think that unfortunately explains why there is this war fever in the United States, because they recognize that they can no longer compete. Ironically, capitalists love to talk about competition. But when they're actually facing competition where they can't win, they resort to war. And we see that the United States is hell-bent on trying to maintain its imperial hegemony and to prevent China from rising. And we even see, for instance, that top US officials have acknowledged that their goal is to prevent China from innovating, to prevent China from developing advanced technology. The Biden administration has imposed many rounds of aggressive sanctions against China, which are illegal according to international law, including trying to prevent China from importing advanced semiconductor technology and quantum computing parts. So the U.S. is already waging a war against China, a hybrid war on many different fronts. But the danger of it escalating into a conventional military war cannot be overstated. I mean, it could lead to the end of humanity. Well, there's one more example that I want to just mention for our audience, which is regarding the, the threat, perhaps even the desire to use nuclear weapons. When the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in October 1962, a thermonuclear war was narrowly averted when Khrushchev and the Soviet Union capitulated and agreed to remove missiles that they had put into Cuba 90 miles from the United States, just as the United States had put missiles all around the Soviet Union in the years prior to that. John F. Kennedy, in his later discussions, and as he told his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, who was also in the meetings, he said, the military is mad, meaning the Pentagon generals actually preferred to drop nuclear bombs on Cuba and on Soviet targets because they had the idea that war was inevitable, war with the Soviet Union had to happen sometime. Why not get it over with now when the Soviet Union is weaker? Because they could see in the trajectory the Soviet Union was growing and getting stronger, just like, as you mentioned, with China. They can see China's going to get stronger. So there are some, I mean, maniacs in the U.S. establishment who believe that if war is coming and we're going to be weaker later, let's do it now. Let's get it over with. And also they think if the war is in Taiwan or in Korea or in the East China Sea or the South China Sea, China won't dare escalate it to threaten American targets somewhere else because they, the Chinese, would know that that would be mutually assured destruction for all. So the calculation is we can contain China limit China, restrict China, overcome China's growth through a containment policy, and China won't dare escalate it into a thermonuclear global conflict. So it's, it's really these maniacs playing nuclear chicken. And, you know, this is exactly how wars and catastrophes do happen. Yeah, I want to just add one brief thought, Brian. 
the maniacs that we're talking about include some of the top officials in Washington, inside and outside of government. I just want to briefly mention that Foreign Policy Magazine, one of the leading mouthpieces of the U.S. ruling class. I mean, this is as mainstream as it gets, right? Foreign Policy Magazine published a series that's called Preparing for the Next War. And it's not about Ukraine, it's about China. And it features a dozen articles, including from people like Petraeus, David Petraeus, the former top U.S. Army general and director of the CIA who oversaw the war in Afghanistan. And he talked about preparing for hybrid war against China and Russia. And it also featured other officials, including Rasmussen, the former secretary general of NATO. And basically the theme in all of those articles is that exactly as you said, war with China is inevitable and we might as well get prepared for it now because if we wait too long, China will be too big and too powerful to contain. So it has to happen in the short term while the U.S. still has a few advantages. That's Foreign Policy Magazine. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to another hot spot. President Xi Jinping had a call with Zelensky, the head of state in Ukraine. Zelensky described the, re, the call, according to Western media sources anyway, and they're you know sympathetic to Zelensky, of course, he called it significant and meaningful discussion. Now, I don't know what that really means. None of us actually do know what it means. China presented its own peace plan for Ukraine. It's been meeting with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who we are no friends of. He's an anti-worker, right-wing capitalist politician, but he's also exercising or trying to exercise a degree of independence from U.S. imperialism, which you know the French bourgeoisie has done at different times over the decades. And he's been in China meeting with Xi Jinping and obviously hoping that the war in Ukraine can come to a negotiated end. The U.S. media treated that visit in a very hostile way because they don't want peace to break out in Ukraine. How dare the leader of France, the second most powerful country in continental Europe, dare to go and negotiate independent of the United States with China to try to see an end to the war because the U.S. doesn't want to end the war. I think the Chinese government does want to end the war, but at the same time, it has a very, very close relationship. And in some ways, I would say a strategic partnership with Russia. It doesn't mean that it was happy about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but clearly it didn't join the imperialist-led condemnation of Russia and instead made it clear that the bonds between China and Russia were not going to be broken. And this was very important in terms of the other countries in the global South, because you can see that following China's lead, or certainly in tandem with China's orientation, the global South, not necessarily a patron of Russia, but not joining in the condemnation of Russia. And in fact, maybe looking forward to a more multipolar or diversification of power sharing in the world. Anyway, what do you, I know you're not a fly on that wall. You weren't in the call. You didn't know what Zelensky and Xi Jinping actually said to each other, but briefly, what do you make of it? Well, I did read the Chinese foreign ministry's diplomatic statements, and I checked out what the Chinese media said about this. And from their statements, it does seem that they consider this to be an important call. 
Beijing is very serious about trying to negotiate peace in Ukraine. And if any country could, I think it actually could be China. Let's not forget that this March, China surprised the world by negotiating peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I think a lot of people considered that to be a very difficult process and they managed to accomplish it. And let's not forget that that was not the first time that a country had tried to broker peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. In fact, Iraq had sponsored peace talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia in 2020. And in January 2020, Donald Trump sabotaged those peace talks by murdering the top Iranian official Qasem Soleimani, who was in Iraq overseeing peace talks. So, I mean, China pulled off a diplomatic coup with that. It was really impressive. Furthermore, China is actually now talking about trying to sponsor diplomatic talks in Palestine, which is something, again, that very impressive considering the U.S. has never been serious about actually pursuing some kind of settlement to the conflict in Palestine. And now we also see that Iran and Saudi Arabia with their rapprochement that has helped facilitate peace talks in Yemen. And Saudi and Omani officials just went to Yemen to discuss bringing an end to the horrific war in Yemen that has caused the worst humanitarian crisis on earth. So the reason I mention all of that is that this diplomatic attempt by China to broker an end to the war in Ukraine is part of a larger context. And I think that gives more import to President Xi's plan to try to bring about an end to this war. Now, I read very carefully what the Chinese foreign ministry said, and there are a few points I want to highlight. First of all, the Chinese foreign ministry emphasized that all countries' territorial integrity and sovereignty needs to be respected, which is a sign that China's hinting that I mean, China always says that, of course, and it's true, but it, it made no indication that it's willing to recognize formally the annexation of Donbass territory that is now Russia considers part of the Russian Federation. And there were, there were referenda in Donbass. And I think it is actually very fair to assume that the majority of people in that region did want to support joining with Russia because there have been many polls that show that these parts of eastern Ukraine, which are Russian ethnically, did have a lot of support for Russia and joining Russia. However, China has not formally supported that. And China is always very careful because of its own concerns about Taiwan and its own territorial integrity. Also, the border disputes it has with India, also Tibet, where the U.S. has supported separatists for many decades. China is very sensitive to that issue. So that's something that Zelensky also reaffirmed in his call with Xi. So that's a sign that China is serious about actually having peace talks, because obviously for Ukraine, that's an issue that they need to discuss. Whereas the US, they don't even consider discussion of any, I mean, they don't even consider giving one iota of concessions to Russia. So you can't actually have peace talks. Another point that's important is that China recognized in its statements that all countries' legitimate security concerns need to be taken into account. What that means is that China is saying that Ukraine cannot join NATO. That's clearly what they're hinting at in the diplomatic statement. When they say all country security guarantees, that means including Russia. It means that Russia also has legitimate security guarantees. And if Ukraine joins NATO with its 2,000 kilometer border, it would simply be an existential security threat to Russia. They cannot tolerate that. So I also want to point out that interestingly, in Zelensky's statement, he underscored that Ukraine is committed to recognizing the one China policy, which, you know, you were talking about the U.S. basically violating the one China policy and supporting separatists in Taiwan. Well, 
even Ukraine is willing to recognize that Taiwan is part of China. So, I mean, we should keep in mind, by the way, that although I, of course, have basically no confidence whatsoever in the Ukrainian government, Ukraine actually does have good relations with China. China is Ukraine's largest trading partner. It has been since 2019. So even before this new phase of the war. And China has maintained a policy. I mean, Chinese diplomatic relations with Ukraine are quite good. It, it does maintain a policy of neutrality. I mean, China's diplomacy basically says we want to have good relations with everyone, including the United States. So, I mean, if any country can broker peace, it's China. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, will the West tolerate this? Because unfortunately, the reality is that in Kiev, even if Zelensky wanted, I mean, he doesn't have that much control. The Ukrainian government is very heavily controlled by the West. And we see this again and again, when at every moment when there were attempts at trying to broker a diplomatic peaceful solution to this war. In March, there were talks in Turkey. And in April, allegedly, according to the former prime minister of Israel, who's, again, I mean, a far-right reprehensible figure, Naftali Bennett, an anti-Palestinian bigot, he said that he also tried to broker peace in Ukraine. And in both cases, the Turkish and Israeli attempts to broker peace were sabotaged by the United States and by Britain. So, I mean, even if Zelensky to the extent he has control, which is very limited, even if he wants to sign a peace deal with Russia brokered by China, I mean, who knows if he actually could. The reality is that the United States has increasingly treated Ukraine basically as a kind of colony. And by the way, meanwhile, you and I have talked about the kind of economic colonization that's happening of Ukraine, where, I mean, huge parts of the Ukrainian economy are quite literally being sold off, being privatized and sold off to Western corporations. There was a, a report recently this past week in the Financial Times about U.S. oil corporations that are now buying up the oil industry in Ukraine that has been privatized as well. So the country is being sold off. And to the extent that, that Zelensky is even in control, I mean, a lot of these decisions, unfortunately, are not being made by him. No, indeed. And that's the... The great tragedy when one thinks about Ukraine and Russia were together as founding republics in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1922, along with Belarusia, and then the Transcaucasus area. These were the countries, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, Russia. They formed the Soviet Union. They built the socialist government there. And what the Ukrainians got was cheap oil from the Caspian, from Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan got low-cost wheat from Ukraine, which was the Soviet breadbasket. And, and the country's been up for sale ever since independence. Independence in 1991 from the Soviet Union or from Russia wasn't independence. It was complete dependence. And it was a form of dependence on imperialism and you know, as Victoria Nuland said, the U.S. had put $5 billion into Ukraine since 1991. This was before the coup in 2014 to invest in democracy. No, this was to get the U.S. control over Ukraine, a very, very big country. And here we, you know, the tragedy is that Ukraine has been basically lost its sovereignty a long time ago. And sadly, the U.S. then used it as a proxy, as a provocation with Russia, I believe hoping that Russia would move in militarily. I think the U.S. wanted the war. 
I think they thought it would go better than it's been going for them. I think they thought Russia would be much weaker as a consequence of all the sanctions and having been fundamentally evicted from the world economy. That's not the case, though. Russia was obviously able to prepare for it and has sustained relationships, not just with China, but also with India, with many, many other countries that have actually increased their trade with Russia. So Russia's not on its last legs, but the tragedy of the war is still very profound. I, as a socialist, as a longtime supporter of the Soviet Union, not because I didn't recognize its, its many defects, many, many defects, but it was the first effort to build socialism where the working class seized power in a revolution, held that power, reorganized society. People were able to have free health care and retire at an early age and have free education, affordable housing. Still poorer countries than the countries in the West, which had amassed all these fortunes from colonialism and, and slavery, et cetera. But still, they were together. They were fighting together. And all of that has been broken up. So I put the war in Ukraine into a particular perspective, which is that the U.S. is fundamentally responsible for the war. I think the Russian military intervention into Ukraine is explainable based on the fact that the U.S. was rushing to incorporate Ukraine into NATO or have a de facto incorporation. It's understandable, but at the same time, it's a great tragedy. And I think the Chinese probably view this in much the same way. Outside of their own geostrategic concerns, and of course, China is a nation living within a system of nations. It's pragmatic. It's not pursuing an internationalist, you know, revolutionary foreign policy. It's got a self-centered foreign policy. But the form that this foreign policy is taking which is to try to minimize and mediate the conflicts that are fundamentally caused by, one, the breakup of the Soviet Union, and two, the extra aggressiveness by world imperialism, especially U.S. imperialism, which saw the breakup of the Soviet Union not as a way to end the Cold War, but as a great opportunity to expand American hegemony. Anyway, speaking of American plans to expand hegemony and to use every criminal tool in the arsenal to do it, in 2019, Trump, again, and I'm glad you pointed out that some liberal leftists sort of like Trump for some of his anti-establishment positions, or I certainly was in favor of peace talks in Korea, without diminishing that Trump, too, like all of the other capitalist politicians, is a, a wretched imperialist. In 2019, he declared that Venezuela had a new president. It wasn't Maduro. It wasn't Nicolas Maduro who was elected. It was somebody else who most Venezuelans had never heard of at that time, named Juan Guaido. And Trump just said, oh, no, he's the president. Biden and the Democrats said, yeah, he's now the president. Trump went ahead and seized the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. The U.S. took control of the Venezuelan embassy in violation of the Vienna Convention, which says that diplomatic compounds are inviolable, seized it from its rightful owner, gave it to Juan Guaido, gave it to the Venezuelan counter-revolutionaries. And just this week, Ben, Juan Guaido landed where? In the presidential palace in Caracas? No, I believe it was the airport in Miami. 
along with many, many other Cuban and Venezuelan counter-revolutionaries who have taken refuge there. Anyway, I want to talk about, I want to get your thoughts real quick about this. Yeah, he is now, uh, he's done Hajj to the, the Mecca of the Latin American far right. He's now in his true homeland, which is Florida, serving his true government, which is the United States. I mean, there's so much to say here. I'll start with the most recent news, and then we'll go back and talk more about the coup attempt, right? But the more recent news is that what happened is that Juan Guaido illegally entered Colombia. Let's not forget that Colombia is Venezuela's neighbor. And Colombia now, for its first time ever, has a left-wing president, Gustavo Petro, right? And this week, in fact, the day that Guaido entered Colombia illegally crossing the border, there was the beginning of peace talks. Peace talks is the wrong word, actually. We were talking about peace. Beginning of negotiations, diplomatic negotiations that are being sponsored by the Colombian government featuring the Venezuelan opposition. And essentially, you could say they're peace talks because the Venezuelan opposition with its U.S. backers has been waging war against the elected Venezuelan government for years. And Gustavo Petro is trying to negotiate a solution so he can help stabilize the region. And one of the first things that Petro did after becoming president of Colombia is normalize relations with Venezuela. For years, Colombia had no formal diplomatic relations with its neighbor one of its largest trading partners. It was an insane policy that the U.S. pushed the right-wing regime in Colombia under former President Ivan Duque to carry out. So Petro opened relations with Venezuela formally. He also opened the border with Venezuela that had been shut for years, which allowed cross-border trade, which is very important for both countries. And it's also important for the families, by the way, who were separated because there are 6 million Colombians in Venezuela who are often not mentioned. We hear about the Venezuelan migrants who left largely because of the economic crisis caused by the illegal sanctions on Venezuela and the blockade. But there are also 6 million Colombians living in Venezuela. So that's the context of the region, right? So according to the Colombian foreign minister, Guaido crossed in illegally. They don't even know how he crossed the border. But what they do know is that the reason that the Colombian government figured out where Guaido was is because they asked the U.S. government and the U.S. government told Colombia. So this is a violation of Colombian sovereignty. The U.S. government clearly helped Juan Guaido illegally cross into Colombia. And according to the Colombian foreign minister, U.S. agents were with Guaido at every single stage, he said. And then Guaido flew out of Colombia to the United States. And according to the Colombian foreign minister, this is, these are his words, every aspect of the operation was overseen by the United States. So once a U.S. puppet, always a U.S. puppet. I mean, this is a guy who, Guaido, who at every single stage of his political career since 2019 has been controlled by the United States. So you mentioned that back in January 2019, he declared himself so-called interim president of Venezuela. And we know because of the Wall Street Journal that the Trump administration was planning this from the beginning. Now, there is this narrative that Guaido declared himself president and then the U.S. supported him. No, 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 no. The entire operation from day one, from before day one, was planned by the United States, by the Trump administration, in collaboration with the most reactionary right wing elements of the Venezuelan opposition, including far right figures like Leopoldo Lopez who were involved in violent coup attempts in 2014 and 2017. 
that used violence to try to overthrow the elected president, Nicolás Maduro. And they, they erected the famous guarimbas, which were these violent barricades. Dozens of Chavistas were killed. There were, for instance, dark-skinned Venezuelans, Afro-Venezuelans were lit on fire. In the case of a very horrific case, there's video footage of a black Venezuelan being lit on fire by these fascists. So these are the forces that the Trump administration was supporting. And then in 2019, they appointed him so-called interim president, and the U.S. was behind the scenes pressuring all of its allies to recognize Guaido as fake president. And then after that, the U.S. and European nations stole billions of dollars of foreign exchange reserves that belong to the Venezuelan central bank. That is the money belonging to the Venezuelan people, including the British central bank, the Bank of England, still refuses to give back more than $1 billion worth of gold that belongs to the Venezuelan central bank. This belongs to the Venezuelan people. And by the way, this is one of the main reasons for the hyperinflation we've seen in Venezuela. We constantly hear this propaganda blaming socialism for the hyperinflation. No, 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 no. It's very easy to explain why there was hyperinflation in Venezuela. The illegal sanctions imposed by the United States, which began in 2015, not even with Trump, it began under Obama, with the executive order that Obama declared in 2015 that declared Venezuela to be a so-called extraordinary and unusual threat to the national security of the United States. With that, the U.S. began imposing sanctions. Trump expanded those sanctions into a full-on economic embargo, a blockade, and he was talking about doing a naval blockade of Venezuela. The only reason that he didn't do that, it's likely because Russia, at the request of Venezuela's sovereign government, Venezuela asked for Russian military support, and Russia had some troops and planes in Venezuela, which the United States, which was talking about doing a naval blockade, and that potentially prevented the U.S. naval blockade. But the point is that at every single level, the U.S. was trying to suffocate this country and stealing Venezuela's foreign exchange reserves. So what that means is that, one, Venezuela was starved of 99% of its foreign currency revenue, which is mainly dollars, because it could no longer sell its oil. And when people talk about this, they, they say, well, why couldn't it sell its oil to other countries? Because it's not just the U.S. sanctions. It's the U.S. secondary sanctions. The United States threatened multiple countries, including its own allies, like India and South Korea, saying they cannot buy Venezuelan oil. And any country around the world that wanted to buy Venezuelan oil was threatened with secondary sanctions by the US, which meant that companies around the world decided they just don't want to do any business with Venezuela. So Venezuela lost 99% of its foreign currency revenue, which means it didn't have dollars, which it needs to buy its currency in foreign exchange markets, which would actually help the exchange rate and help prevent the currency from depreciating. And furthermore, with the theft of its foreign exchange reserves and its gold, Venezuela's central bank basically had nothing in its foreign exchange reserves, and it was unable to stabilize its currency by intervening in foreign exchange markets. So, I mean, this is an economic war. That's why there was hyperinflation in Venezuela. I mean, it's very simple to explain it. It's not because of socialism. The U.S. has been waging an insane economic and political war against Venezuela. And finally, this brings us to today. Last year in 2022, the parallel National Assembly, the fake National Assembly created by the right-wing opposition in Venezuela as a parallel to the real National Assembly, even they voted to kick out Juan Guaido. 
the rationale that they gave for claiming that Guaido was so-called interim president was the United States claimed that the opposition-controlled National Assembly in Venezuela was supposedly the only democratic institution in scare quotes, and Guaido had been elected by the right-wing opposition to be the leader of the National Assembly. Therefore, they said that he's the leader of the only democratic institution, therefore he's the interim president. Well, his own erstwhile allies kicked him out. So as of last year, even the right-wing opposition in Venezuela no longer recognized Guaido as anything. He was a complete joke, and yet the U.S. still claims that the parallel right-wing controlled National Assembly, in scare quotes, that's not the actual National Assembly, is the only institution that the U.S. recognizes as representing the Venezuelan government. So here we are. I mean, we're seeing these talks right now in Colombia, and the United States is represented at these talks, and Colombia is trying to negotiate some kind of settlement so they can renegotiate the talks in Mexico, because the Venezuelan government is not represented in these talks in Colombia right now. So this is all about trying to get some kind of diplomatic relations and talks between the, the extreme right-wing Venezuelan opposition, which are just U.S. puppets, and the Venezuelan government. And of course, Venezuelan government's demand is that the sanctions have to be lifted. So that's what Colombia is trying to do right now. President Petro, in his speech, he said that Latin America has to be a zone of peace and it cannot be a zone of sanctions. And that was a clear sign that the Colombian president is calling on the U.S. to lift its sanctions on Venezuela and also on Nicaragua and Cuba. But of course, we know that the Biden administration has really not changed its policy toward Venezuela until last year, it still recognized Juan Guaido, this you know, Trump-appointed coup puppet. And still today, in 2023, the U.S. refuses to recognize the legal, democratically elected government of Venezuela, which sits at the United Nations. That's the thing about the democratic opposition to the Republicans, the so-called liberal opposition to the right wing in the United States within the ruling class politics of empire, they share all the same positions. I mean, Trump sees the embassy. That was, by the way, I was part of, along with the Answer Coalition, the Embassy Protection Collective. We were in the embassy at the invitation as guests of the Venezuelan government. We were holding peace seminars there. We were then besieged by counter-revolutionaries. And that struggle went on for six weeks before Secret Service and FBI and the D.C. police moved in and arrested those of us who were the invited guests of the owners of the building. That would be the Venezuelan government. They evicted us, arrested the last remaining protesters, and basically allowed the right-wing counter-revolutionary Venezuelans to vandalize this diplomatic building. And then they, they seized it. They took control of it. And so Venezuela's had essentially no embassy in Washington. There's no like normal embassy functions that Juan Guaido's entourage could actually carry out in Washington. But, you know, this was a big struggle by progressive people standing with Venezuela against the piracy and lawlessness of the U.S. government. The violation of the Vienna Convention, the Vienna Convention exists, again, for our audience. It's not to favor some against others. Every government wants to make sure its diplomatic compound, its embassy is safe because there will always be conflicts. There might be even wars. But if your embassy personnel are going to be targeted, if your building's going to be targeted, vandalized, bombed, attacked, violently attacked, 
like everybody's the loser there because then the entire existing infrastructure of global diplomacy falls apart. So the Vienna Convention institutionalized the protections of these embassies, the inviolability of the embassy. And so you have Trump saying, Trump and Bolton and that whole crew of right-wing imperialists saying, no, we to hell with the Vienna Convention, we're seizing that embassy. And then Biden comes in and he was like, yeah, we're going to keep seizing it. I mean, no difference at all, none. So yeah, they have some differences of opinion about whether the Republicans or Democrats should get the, you know, be the controlling party, because there's a lot of money involved in being the ruling party when a, a state hands out $2 trillion in contracts. That's very lucrative. They have some minor differences over social issues. The Democrats pretend to care about some people's rights, not many, and certainly not ferociously. But bottom line, Ben, the Republicans and the Democrats, one party of empire, one ruling class party, no alternative is allowed. The Democrats and Republicans write all the election rules in every state so that genuine left-wing third parties can never really compete. And then the U.S. tells itself and tells the world and pounds its chest and say, we are the great democracy, when in fact the system is designed to make sure that democracy doesn't happen. I want to, because time is running short, I want to move real quick because we're talking about this new era of global politics. We've said on this show that the invasion by Russia into Ukraine at the end of February 2024 ended one political era, the era that started with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, and inaugurated a new era. Some might call it multipolarity. You know, time will tell. We'll see, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now or maybe a half century from now what this era will really look like. And a lot will depend on what we, the people, do. But it's definitely a new era. And the countries of the global South, the countries that were colonized and humiliated, just like China was in the century of humiliation until the 1949 socialist revolution emancipated China and allowed China to stand up, as Chairman Mao said in Tiananmen Square on October 1st, 1949. The global South, what was referred to after the Bandung Conference in 1956 as the Third World, those countries are trying to find a way to stay together, stick together, not because they have ideological unity. It's not really that at all. Some of the governments are left-wing, some are right-wing, some are somewhere in between, but they have a common problem, which is unipolar U.S. hegemony, the domination of imperialism over the rest of the world, and they're looking for new entities to block together. And one of those is BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, those five very big emerging countries, countries that would have been considered part of the third world. The expansion of BRICS is something very, very noteworthy. We don't have much time left, Ben, but I want you to sort of let our audience know like what's actually happening with BRICS and whether it's significant or not. This is absolutely huge. We actually now see that the combined size of the five original founders of the BRICS, their economies, is actually larger than all of the G7 countries' economies combined. The G7 is basically the imperialist cartel. It's the Western countries plus Japan. And we now see that China, again, is leading growth 
And again, it's high quality growth because GDP is sometimes not a good measurement because your working class can get poorer while the capitalist class gets richer and GDP can grow. But in the case of China, we're talking about high quality, real economic growth. It's in the real economy, not financial speculation. And if you listen to the comments made recently by President Xi, he's been talking about multipolarity. In fact, when French President Macron went to Beijing, President Xi said that we are we are both important countries as permanent members of the UN Security Council, and we both support building a multipolar world. And in the case of China, I mean, it's so important to keep this in mind because China has played an activist role in facilitating the emergence of these new alternatives to Western domination. So when we're talking about the BRICS, the New Development Bank comes to mind, the BRICS Bank. So the BRICS system, which consists of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, South Africa, created its alternative to the Western-dominated World Bank, which is the only country that has veto power in the World Bank is the United States. The World Bank was created as part of the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 that also established the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, also with U.S. control, U.S. veto power. And importantly, the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference established the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. And still today, we're in an era in which the dollar is the global reserve currency, but that's changing very quickly. And the New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, is based in Shanghai, and it just inaugurated its new president, Dilma Rousseff, who was the former president of Brazil from the left-wing Workers' Party. She succeeded Lula da Silva. And President Lula of Brazil, the new left-wing president now in his third term, he visited Shanghai this April, as part of a trip to China for four days, he met with President Xi. Lula signed 15 different agreements with China. And one of those agreements is China and Brazil are de-dollarizing their trade. So they're trading with each other in their local currencies, the Brazilian real and the Chinese renminbi. But another important part of this trip is that President Lula said when he visited the New Development Bank headquarters in Shanghai, he said, we need a bank for the global south. We need a bank that understands the development needs of countries in the global south. We need a bank that will help fight poverty and inequality, that will help fund a transition toward renewable energies and fight climate change. And we need to get off the US dollar. And this is a, a refrain we hear across the global south, more and more countries. China is now buying gas from the United Arab Emirates through a French company using its own currency, the renminbi. China and Russia are doing two-thirds of their trade in their local currencies, and Russia has pledged to drop the dollar and the euro completely in all of its oil and gas sales. China and Brazil signed this agreement to trade in their local currencies. Kenya is buying oil and gas from Saudi Arabia and the UAE in its own local currency. We also see that the ASEAN region, the countries in Southeast Asia and the Association for Southeast Asian Nations, they are developing their own local mechanisms for international trade within the region. And the Indonesian president, Wakoto, has called for dropping the dollar and using local currencies and local payment mechanisms. A lot of this is being pushed by U.S. sanctions. We talked about Venezuela. The illegal aggressive sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on countries around the world is pushing countries in the global south to seek alternatives to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. This is very important because although there are some reactionary governments involved in this, for instance, India, which has a horrific fascistic government led by Narendra Modi, who, by the way, 
I mean, he did not co-found the BRIC system. The BRIC system was co-founded by the previous, you know, center, center left government of the Indian National Congress Party before the far right BJP party came to power. So the point is that in India, it's not like, and in fact, the weakest link in the BRICS is the far right government of India. In fact, it's the left that's driving this BRICS integration process, specifically China and Brazil. But anyway, the point is that as we see countries in the global south move toward economic alternatives, it's very important because it opens political and economic space for new economic models that are alternatives to neoliberalism and even capitalism. Because the problem is, and this is the important point to stress about multipolarity and that I'll end with, is that obviously you can have a multipolarity of different capitalist powers, which, I mean, doesn't solve the problem. I mean, capitalism inherently is imperialism. It tends toward imperialism. Imperialism is an inherent part of the capitalist mode of production. However, what's unique about this moment is that we have a socialist pole led by China, which is the largest economy in the world. And many countries, especially in the global south, are looking toward China to try to borrow some of its tactics for economic development. And what we see in the BRICS actually is, despite some of the differences, we see a general trend toward state-led developmental models. And I actually was just recently listening to an interview, a presentation done by a Chinese economist at the New Development Bank in Shanghai. And he distinguished, he said that this is a significant distinction where if you look, for instance, at the de-dollarization of trade and commodities trade, most of this is being led by state-owned companies in the BRICS states. So even Russia, for instance, which does not have a socialist government, much of this is being led by Russia's state-owned commodities companies because Russia recognizes that you know, the gas needs to be controlled by the state, the oil needs to be controlled by the state, some of the other natural resources. So the point is that as BRICS and other economic alternatives are created to this neoliberal infrastructure created by the United States, like the IMF and the World Bank, it allows countries more room to pursue new economic models. Because obviously, if you wanted to try to develop socialism, how can you do it in the 1990s when you know, the Soviet Union was overthrown in this coup and we see basically any country that tries to pursue an independent economic path of development like Cuba, the DPRK, they're crushed. Yugoslavia was destroyed. Iraq was destroyed. They tried to destroy Syria. They did destroy Libya. But now there are new alternatives. So if you want to pursue socialist policies, you can actually get developmental assistance and get finance and loans from other institutions that aren't the IMF and the World Bank that impose neoliberal structural adjustment on you. So this explains why so many countries in the global south are excited about this possibility that multipolarity offers. Of course, it does offer more dangers because the United States is trying to prevent the rise of multipolarity by waging war, basically, to prevent the rise of China and other countries in the global south. But I think this is a very important moment because with the weakening of the imperialist world system, imperialism is not just one country, right? It's not just a country's policies. Imperialism is a world system that is largely based on the extraction of wealth from the periphery of that world system, of the imperialist core, so those are largely countries in the global south that rely on the export of commodities and raw materials, and they rely on very low value added industry. Whereas in the imperial core of the imperialist world system, the advanced capitalist countries rely on exploiting the cheap labor of the global south and importing their cheap commodities 
and low value added products, and they export their high value added products from advanced technology to the periphery. And there's this system of constant extraction of wealth from the South that is drained toward the North. Well, that entire system is being turned on its head now with the rise of China and also Vietnam and even Indonesia. I mean, we're now seeing for the first time in hundreds of years since the rise of European colonialism that the Asian powers in particular, but also certain economies in Africa and Latin America are developing at a faster level and they are actually overtaking the Western economies in their size, the size of their economies and also in industrial development. So the question going forward is what will be the character of the economic development of these countries in the global South? Clearly China, Vietnam, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, they have proposed a particular model. And I think now the question is gonna be in the years going forward, there's gonna be two main questions. One, how can socialists advance more of a state-led developmental model that acts on behalf of the working class? And two, what can anti-war activists do to prevent more war from breaking out and specifically prevent the United States from accelerating its new Cold War on China and Russia to a full-on conventional war? All right, Ben, we're going to have to start to wrap it up. It's been a great discussion. If one looks at recent history, meaning, say, the past 250 years, recent like that recent, you can see that the decline of empires is a consequence of wars, wars that are lost. It's also a consequence of coinciding economic crises. Starting with the French Revolution and the fall of the French monarchy, throughout the next 250 years, these coinciding factors of war and economic crisis, they are the combustible sort of context for big changes, big revolutionary changes. And empires, even when they're diseased and decadent and degenerating, they don't die on their own. Something has to end them. And it's either war or revolution or both. And I say that because at the same time that we're talking about the new geostrategic realities where U.S. power has been diminished and other major powers are emerging that challenge U.S. hegemony, when you look at the center of U.S. capitalism, it's very, very fragile. It had the dot-com crisis at the turn of the century, 2008-9, a complete financial meltdown on Wall Street, the second biggest economic crisis for capitalism in the history of capitalism. The first, of course, was the 1930s. And the 2020 economic crisis, which was you know, only the next in line after the 2008 and 9 crisis, a very vast, deep crisis, which would have completely basically paralyzed U.S. capitalism if it had not been for the intervention of the U.S. government, the U.S. state. And now we look at the headlines. I'm looking at a headline today. First Republic Bank is in crisis. $100 billion in deposits withdrawn at the same time that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and Signature Bank collapsed last month. There were $100 billion in withdrawn deposits. In other words, a major run. I'm looking at CNN. As we're speaking, First Republic may not survive even after two multi-billion dollar bailouts. So even infusing these 
sick financial institutions with billion dollar bailouts isn't doing the trick. So Ben, we are on the verge of a new economic recession in the United States, and undoubtedly that'll have great global impact. The US capitalist corporations and banks, which seem so omnipotent and powerful one day, seem very fragile the next day. And our message here on the socialist program, and I know where you are in Latin America, the same message is that if you wanna get rid of empire, if you wanna get rid of the danger and scourge of war and exploitation and oppression, then we the people have to organize, we have to mobilize, we have to become a political factor. And the reason we do this show isn't simply to provide interesting content, even though it is interesting, we provide this content because people need information to be better fighters in the struggle for justice, in the struggle for economic and social justice, which means to fight against imperialism and empire. And I wanna thank you, Ben, again, and to emphasize for people who wanna follow you, just real quick, how can they find you? What's your website? And then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, well, thank you, Brian. The work you do is invaluable here at the Socialist Program, but also in general, Breakthrough. You all are doing such amazing, important work. For people who want to follow my work, they can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com. And I do a lot of reporting on my own. And I also collaborate a lot with really good political economists. And we talk about the crises of capitalism, specifically with Michael Hudson and Radhika Desai. They have their own show. Where, so if people want to educate themselves more on the crises of capitalism, we've talked a lot about the recent collapse of three banks in the United States in one week, including Silicon Valley Bank. We'll be talking about First Republic Bank and others. I mean, we're at a moment really where capitalism is in severe crisis. In the 1970s, capitalism was in crisis and the solution was neoliberalism. We've been living through the neoliberal era ever since. And it was basically all based on a series of financial bubbles. You talked about the dot-com bubble. We now talk about the everything bubble. We had the real estate bubble in 2008. It's all based on this big bubble of asset price inflation, and that's popping now as we face consumer price index inflation in the US and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. It's gonna cause a recession, we're already seeing it, and it's gonna basically burst the asset price inflation bubble they've been trying to blow up ever since the rise of neoliberalism in the 80s. So we're at a, a very dangerous moment with the geopolitical conflicts we talked about, the crisis of imperialism, and the crisis at home in the domestic economy, in the capitalist system. And I think you're right. The only way to actually solve both of those problems, the crises of empire and the crises of capital, is through a new economic model with, that puts the interests of workers, of the people first, which is socialism. That's the only way to move forward. Otherwise, they're just going to try to bring back fascism, unfortunately. All right. We'll leave it right there. Ben Norton, thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.